So the reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and you can find that on your Pew Bibles, page 967. The Temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, Rachel. Do you keep that passage uh, open in front of you? So as we head into uh, Lent, and uh, you'll know Ash Wednesday uh, was this past week, and this is the first Sunday Lent, uh, this is quite often the, the reading set um, for heading into Lent, not least because these days that Jesus spends in the wilderness, this resisting temptation, this going without for the sake of what he's going for, are to be the Christian model um, of something what Lent is meant to be about, putting God first, a refreshing of our desire for him, a setting on one side of those things that are distractions that will tear us away from him. And there is a sermon to be preached, um, and often is preached, about how as we watch Jesus being tempted, as we watch him resisting temptation, um, how we're to do the same. Uh, how we're to use him as our model, if you like, for resisting temptation. Um, the use of scripture to defeat the devil, keeping our eyes and heart on the positive serving of God, not simply on trying to avoid the negative. Uh, but this sermon is not that. See, my problem is that the danger of approaching the temptations of Jesus that way, particularly in the sort of uh, setting of heading into Lent, runs the risk of turning the Christian life into a, a task that has to be achieved as if to be a Christian, particularly in Lent, is sort of akin to Who Dares Wins, uh, that SAS reality program. Some of us um, have been either watching or half squinting. I, I struggle to watch it, to be honest. It, it, I find it far too unsettling. Um, but many of us have known that one of our friends, locally and a member of All Souls, Carla, um, has been uh, magnificently part of that series um, and doing an incredible job of sort of getting through these uh, grueling uh, sort of tests, uh, obstacle courses, sleep deprivation, mock torture, all sorts of stuff. And that sense of the, the Christian life, like what she's been through, is a way, is a case of saying, how well can you do? Life's going to throw all these things at you. Life's going to throw temptations at you. The enemy's going to attack you. How well 
can you resist? And if you do really well, then you're going to be one of those chosen few that we all look up to and admire. But for the rest of us who struggle to merely consider the possibility of a park run on a Saturday morning, let alone going on an SAS program, we're going to look at the spiritual lives of other people and go, it's not really for me. And yet, the Christian faith is not, is absolutely not, never has been, never will be, primarily about what I do. The Christian faith is not, never has been, never will be about what I achieve, how well I resist temptation, how good a life that I do, how well I get through the obstacle course of life. No, the Christian faith is all about what God does. It's all about what the God we meet in Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in him. And that the life we live as Christians is only that of response. In other words, it's all about grace. That most uniquely Christian of all words. The word that sums up that God makes the first move. That God does for us and instead of us and before us what we cannot and what we will not do for ourselves. And he does it before we even ask, before we even know him, and despite knowing the worst about us. And you'll know, over the years, I've tried regularly to sum that up, sometimes using those words of absolution. You heard them again today, that you would know that Jesus lived for you that perfect life you can't live for yourself, that you would know that Jesus died for you that death you mustn't face alone, that you would know that Jesus took hold for you of that resurrection life that you couldn't grasp for yourselves. In other words, at every turn, in life, in death, and beyond, it's God's going ahead for us in Jesus, his standing in for us in Jesus, his rescuing us in Jesus, simply means we can respond in kind. I've been somewhat a rabbit in the headlights over these past few weeks as I've thought about what on earth do I preach about in you know, my last three sermons um, as vicar here. And I'm not sure why I thought it was so complicated, really, um, because actually it's fairly obvious to me. My first three sermons here 15 years ago were all about grace. Um, and pretty much every Sunday, that's what we've talked about, about grace. Because uniquely, that is what is the beating heart of the Christian faith. That what's, that's what makes following Jesus different from any other way of life that you can choose, any other religion you can follow, any other um, uh, worldview that you can choose, simply that we respond to what God has already done for us in Jesus. And so today, and, um, and next weekend is the weekend away, but for the, then the last two Sundays, I simply want to talk about amazing grace. And today, simply talk about the way that in Jesus, and in particular in this beautiful visual aid of the temptations in the wilderness, the way in which Jesus lives the perfect life that you and I cannot live for ourselves. Simple gift of grace. He lives the perfect life that we can't live for ourselves. Now look, the context of Matthew, uh, of Matthew 4 is that Matthew has begun his gospel by anchoring it all, by setting it all, this story of Jesus, in the context of the big story of the whole of the Bible. So Matthew 1 is this genealogy. If you want to turn back a page or so, you'll see this big list of names. And it begins with Abraham, the one to whom God makes the promise that in you and from you I will create a nation. 
a nation that will be a light for the whole world, a blessing for the whole world. And what God promises Abraham and what God wants for his people, God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, is that they should live out that perfect human life that is all about responding to the God who's chosen them. And as they live out as God's people, the life of God, they should be like a light shining on a hill. They should be a blessing to everyone else. That As they live out the life that all human beings are meant to live, they would then draw people to God. He would bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world. And what you find Matthew doing in the first three chapters of his gospel is drawing really deliberate parallels between God's Old Testament people, Israel, and Jesus. So he starts with a genealogy that begins with Abraham, goes through uh, all these astonishing heroes of faith, and lands with Jesus. And then you find in, towards the end of Matthew 1, Jesus is described as God with us, God's son, just as Israel was called God's son and was to bring the presence of God there. And then in Matthew 2, you find Jesus escaping into Egypt. And Matthew reminding his readers of the fact that God's people, Israel, also ended up in Egypt, had to be called out of Egypt as his son. And then you find in Matthew 4, as Jesus stands on the edge of public ministry, that Jesus, as he resists the temptations of the devil, quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. And the book of Deuteronomy is all about God's people, Israel, standing on the edge, not of public ministry, but standing on the edge of the promised land and being reminded of what God's done for them, being reminded of how they were meant to respond to him and being reminded, frankly, of the mess they've made. If you read the beginning of Deuteronomy, what you find again and again and again is God saying, do you remember? I did this, but you did that. I did this, but you responded this way. I did that, but still you went on and did the other. In other words, what Matthew was setting up for, is that, for us is this. God's intention for his world was for his people to show a watching world what it looks like to live that perfect human life. And in doing so, to draw people in to living the way they were made to live. And yet his people simply weren't up to it. Simply messed up again and again. When they were tempted in the wilderness, and they were, every time. They tripped up over their own feet. They gave in to temptation. So, says God, in that astonishing act of grace, that perfect life that you could not live, I, says God, in Jesus, will come and live for you. Now, just sit with that for a moment. This is an astonishing moment. We're quite familiar in religion with the demand of a God who says, here is my standard, you better keep it. That's what religion generally does, isn't it? Here's my standard, this is the way you're meant to live, I'm going to give you your instructions, your rules, your ways of doing it, now get on. And depending on the religion, the, the rewards and the penalties vary. The reward may be heaven or nirvana or sort of inner peace, and the penalty might be disassociation from reality or might be hell but it's all about reward and punishment and it's all down to you but in the Christian faith God looks at us knows the worst of us 
knows how his people have always failed, have always given into temptation, simply are incapable of living that perfect human life that will bless the world. And so God says in that astonishing act of grace, I will, in Jesus, live that perfect life you cannot live. I will do it for you. It's part of what the New Testament means when it talks about the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life in return for my imperfect life. His perfection for my mess. His perfection for my sin. He lives it out. So what you see here in these temptations is Matthew showing us that in each of these temptations, Jesus is facing the same temptation Israel felt, uh, faced in the desert and how he doesn't give in how he lives perfectly in our place. So the first temptation is to do with hunger. Verse 2, after fasting for 40 days, this is the best understatement in the whole of the Bible, by the way. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. I get hungry if I haven't had breakfast by 7 o'clock. So this is a whole different level of hungry. Now, what, you, what Matthew's first readers will have immediately made the connection with is that when God's Old Testament people came out of Egypt, they went into the desert, they had 40 years rather than 40 days, and in the desert, they got hungry. I mean, not very hungry in the same way that Jesus went for 40 days, but hungry enough, maybe after a day of not having quite enough to eat, that they started saying to God, Do you know what? I know you got us out of Egypt, and that was a fairly astonishing thing, but could you just take us back there? Because although we were slaves and we were on the point of genocide, at least we had food. That doesn't make a lot of sense when you say it like that, but it didn't make a lot of sense when they said it either. And they started complaining, saying to God, feed us. We need food. We need water. And that's when God gives the manna in the wilderness, when he gives them that astonishing heavenly food out of nowhere, when he brings the quail, when he brings the water from the rock. And it's in the context of that that when you go back into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, which is where Jesus quotes from, the writer of Deuteronomy says to God's people, you remember what you did when you complained? You remember how you lost track of God because all you could think about was your stomachs? In other words, to use some language from earlier in our service, you know when you forgot about the giver and all you could think about was the gift? You remember that? Well, don't forget Human beings do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In other words, human beings are not meant to live on the gift, but from the giver. Now, you and I know perfectly well that we live through our lives so often relying on the gift rather than the giver. What we care about most, well, what I care about most is being physically well, physically full, having the stuff around me that I like, And if I can add God on, that's great. And if God doesn't provide, well, then I'm going to complain. Now, the Bible says, and Jesus says, God loves to provide for our needs. But the point is that it's about the giver, not the gift. It's about the word that comes from God's lips, not just about the bread that we physically consume. And Jesus does it perfectly. 40 days of of fasting. And he has the opportunity to use this godly power to fulfill his own needs and he says no I'm going to live that perfect life that you could not live for yourself the second temptation is to test God the devil quotes from the Psalms 
verse 6 there. If you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus again returns to Deuteronomy. Verse 7, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again and again, as you look at the life of Old Testament Israel, you see them testing God, saying to God, look, if you really love us, if we're really your people, if we can really trust you, then. Whereas actually the human life is meant to be lived out of saying, because I can trust you, then. Because I know your God, please would you. I may not understand you. You may not always do what I want you to do, but you are still good. You are still God. We're so tempted, aren't we, to keep on checking in. Is God really there? Is God really worth trusting? Is God really good? Is God really great? And to use those words of God, if you're really God, then you would do this. You would do that. As if we can... Sounds crazy to even say it. Morally blackmail God into answering our prayers the way we want it. So hard not to. In fact, it's impossible not to, it seems, to really trust God, to really know him to be who he is. And Jesus says, I know. But what you cannot do, what you find yourself incapable of doing, of fully trusting God, your heavenly Father, to be God, even when you don't understand, I will do in your place. And that third temptation, you see it there from verse 8 onwards. The devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. There is that temptation to gain what seems to be a good thing by substituting something for God that is not God. Now, again, in Deuteronomy, in the context of the restating of the law, they're reminded that when Moses first brought them the law, they had done exactly this. Moses was up on the Mount Sinai, and while he was up there, the people panicked. They were going, well, where's God gone? Our leader's gone. What are we going to do? So they make a golden calf. They melt down all their valuables. They make this golden calf, and they bow down and worship it. And their answer to, to Moses when he comes down the mountain and says, what on earth have you done, is... Is quite offensive, and it's pretty much along the lines of, well, God wasn't there, and we needed something to rely on, so we've made a golden calf. Jesus could have thought to himself, God has sent me to be king of the world. This is a shortcut. It's a good thing. It would mean that I'd be king. You're going to give me all the kingdoms of the world? I could do this. It's a good thing. All I've got to do is bow down and worship somebody else. I can avoid the cross. Avoid all that messy business. That's what you or I do, isn't it? You know, there are lots of good things in life that I'm willing to sacrifice everything to achieve. You know, I long for peace, and I long for security, and I long to be something, and I long for my family to be secure. And so I'm willing to bow down at the idol of career. I'm willing to bow down at the idol of money. I'm willing to bow down at the idol of what other people think of me. I'm willing to bow down at the idol of status in order to achieve something which I know is good, which is the safety and security of my family or my own well-being. Jesus doesn't do that. 
He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Deuteronomy 6. Just like God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, we fail all the time. Doesn't matter who we are. Vicar, archdeacon, name them, we all fail. We're all in the same boat. All of us allow our physical needs to skew our priorities. Just turn these stones into bread. All of us test God by saying, this is just too difficult. If you really loved me, then you would. All of us, when we're under pressure, are tempted to worship at the idols that are simply not God. But our motivation for resisting temptation is not, simply is not, never will be, in order to get it right so God will love me, in order to get it right so that God approves of me, in order to get it right so I can reach the promised land. Now, my motivation for living for God is that he's already lived for me. It's very simple. God in Christ has lived the perfect life. I cannot live for myself. And so, I want to live for him. It, it's very simple and very beautiful and utterly life-changing. My motivation is to do what Jesus has already done for me. My motivation is simply to follow in his footsteps. That's what being a disciple is. My motivation is simply and only to live for him who has already lived for me. To live without fear. He's already dealt with that. To live knowing I'm going to keep on tripping up over my own feet. I'm going to keep on messing up. I'm going to keep on giving into temptation. But he doesn't. He hasn't. He never will. The grace of God is that God steps into our messy, muddled, and difficult world in Jesus. That in Jesus, he becomes the one who hungers, and yet he's the one who feeds others. He becomes the one who grows weary, yet offers others rest. He's the king of kings, and yet pays tribute even to Caesar. Jesus is the one who gets called the devil, and yet he casts demons out of others. Jesus is the one who comes and dies the death of a sinner, yet he saves people from their sins. He's the one who is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, yet he gives his life as a ransom for many. Jesus will not turn stones into bread for himself, yet he gives his body to feed you and me. In other words, grace finds that Jesus lives the perfect life. I cannot live for myself. He gives me the only true motivation for living a good life, which that he's already given me, the gift of life itself. I simply want to join in what is already mine. As we come to worship and as we head towards communion, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you loved me so much, that you lived that perfect life. I could not live for myself. Your righteousness, your rightness in exchange for my sin and my failure. Set my eyes and my heart on how you lived for me. And into my life will you pour your transforming power by your spirit, your grace. 
and may I respond by living for you. I'm going to suggest that we remain seated. We're going to use this song which focuses on grace simply as part of our way of responding. And then Don.